Well, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano has rocked the world by releasing his second open letter to President Donald Trump. And yesterday I did a, a video going through every single line and word of that open letter. And there were some things in that were a little obscure. For example, the reference to the magic circle, the catacomb, the mystery of iniquity, etc. And so I'm joined today with Dr. Ed Mazza, who's a Catholic historian and has in really in the last several months become the expert or one of the leading expert on all matters related to papacy, catacomb, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, valid conclave, valid resignation, etc. You've seen him many times on my channel already, and he's back this time to do some analysis of what Vigano has said in this very important letter. So, Dr. Ed Mazza, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back. So, um, this this new letter is pretty powerful. We're going to jump right into it. And, you know, I really wanted to, to bring you on because, as you would mentioned before we went live, and we're going to pray in just a moment, uh, our show that we did together was really kind of uh, one of the first times uh, Catacon was discussed, you know, openly in a popular situation. Right, exactly. Um, and I'm, I'm, we're going to delve into what Archbishop Vigano has to say on the topic, because some, some people are confused. Mm -hmm. Is it the Pope? Is it the President? Or is it both? What, what's the story right. with that? Is it the Emperor? <laughs> I, wanna, I, wanna, <laughs> I did that yesterday with um, Charles Coulomb. It's great. So, um, all right, well, let's pray. We'll pray the Our Father together, and uh, then we'll jump into this exciting topic. Um, Dr. Mazza, do you want to say the second half of the of the uh, Pater Noster? Sure thing. All right. Oremus. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in celis, sanctificator nomen tuum, adveniant regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimiti nobis debita nostra, Sicut et nos dimitibus debitoribus nostris, and ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libra nos amalo. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, please send us your Holy Spirit to give us illumination. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, so should we talk about Second Thessalonians and Catacomb, or where do you want to steer us, Dr. Mazza? Sure. Okay. That's it. So um, I guess the best way would be for everyone to open up their Bibles, everyone. Catholics aren't, are sometimes intimidated by that, but there's no reason to. Um, I was just reading last night, I meant to bring it here to the computer, but Dr. Mazza, I read The Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius. Ah. Are, you, are you familiar with this work? Uh, not, no, not directly. As far as I know, it was written before the year 700 in the late 600s. As far as I know, I've been doing this research on Katakan. It is the earliest um, exegesis on Katakan and the Second Thessalonians passage. It's kind of interesting. And it's early. We're talking before the 700s. So I, I read the whole thing last night. And what I gained from it is... It, it basically tells the end of the world of Christians being persecuted by the sons of Ishmael. And of course, we know the sons of Ishmael are the, the Arabian people, and it's basically Islam. And it talks about how the mystery of iniquity is held back by the Katakan, and it, it specifies it. 
And it has a lot of reference to the Roman Empire, a renewed Roman Empire, and of course, a Roman king. And I think it's the first time that written down in which there's this tradition that a future eschatological king, the document calls it King of the Romans, goes to Jerusalem and places his crown at Golgotha. It's very interesting. It's very vivid. Um, I need to get you a copy so you can read it. But it, it it goes, it's, in chapter 10 is when it breaks down Katekon. And, the, and I wanted to say, well, is it the Roman Empire? The the language is very obscure. And I think that kind of goes with Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is very obscure as well. Um, should we read? Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, is the early church fathers, you know, before Augustine are pretty much to a man on record as saying that it's, it's the Roman Empire that... Uh, uh, Paul is referring to, but maybe we should go through it together and see exactly what Paul says. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to put it on the screen, the the verses, so that people can can go along with us. I guess I'll put verse four through. Do you have a preference, Doctor Mazza? You can start at verse four, sure. Verse four, and then um, I think I'll go to verse eight. That's that's probably enough for people to see. Again, we're in Second Thessalonians. And uh, let's see if this works again. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Um, I've got the Dewey Rames here. Great. Do you, do you want me to read and then I'll just pause and let you make comments? Exactly. Sure. Does that sound good? Okay. Here we go. Verse 4, St. Paul, epistle, second epistle to Thessalonians. Who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is God? Or that is worship. So he that sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as he were God. Actually, I'll read verse four before that. Verse, oh, sorry, verse three. Let no man deceive you by any means, for unless there come a revolt first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of provision, uh, perdition. So, you want to say something on that, Doctor Mazza, about the revolt and the man of sin? Yeah. So, revolution, I think, is the key word there. Revolt mm-hmm. um, and. There's going to be a rebellion against God before the false prophet of the Antichrist comes and before the Antichrist himself comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I could put a shameless plug in here, uh, during Advent, during the Sundays of Advent, I'm going to be offering a mini course about the Advent of Christ in his church and uh-huh. the Advent of the Antichrist in his church, oh, his wow. anti-church. Um, cool. But specifically as regards the revolt, you know, tomorrow's the, uh, the anniversary of uh, Martin Luther. I think he starts it off. I think that starts mm-hmm. the end times. Uh, but yeah, it, it, Paul is, uh, telling us about what's going to happen in the end times. Yeah. And this, in all commentators, it's universal that the, the son, um, of perdition, the man of sin, this is the antichrist, right? And so Paul's kind of giving us a preview in a very cryptic way. So he says in verse three, that first will come the revolt. And then the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. In verse 4, who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as he were God. So, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, but it, it fits in with everything that we kind of know in general about the coming of the Antichrist, yeah. that trying to replace God and... Yeah. And, he, and in this passage, he's going to say the lawless one. 
mm-hmm. you know, the man without law. And I think that's important because uh, we've, we've seen a great deal of lawlessness uh, in the last six months. Yeah. You know, one thing that commentators are conflicted on is it says that this Antichrist figure, the son of perdition, will sit in the temple of God. Now, this is this is important because some say that the sec, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And then instead of it having like the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies dedicated to the true God, that will become the throne room of Antichrist in Jerusalem. Others, however, say the temple of God refers to the spiritual temple of God, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What's your take on that, Dr. Mazza? Um, I would tend towards the former okay. because uh, the I, from my reading of the fathers and, and authors on the subject, it seems that the Antichrist himself uh, is not going to be a churchman, but a very attractive, charismatic, temporal ruler. Uh, although I think we can argue that the, the, the false prophet who's going to pave the way for the Antichrist, the way John the Baptist kind of paved the way for the Christ, uh, could very well be a churchman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as regards Jerusalem, um, there uh, there was a, uh, don't want to get into the weeds on this, but there was a 19th century Italian nun, a mystic, and in her writings, it, it appears that there's a, that the papacy one day could move to Jerusalem because that's where it originated with Peter, actually. Uh, so I think I think that's tied in there perhaps as well, uh, this competition between the church and the anti-church. Yeah, if you read the novel Lord of the World, not to spoil the ending for you, but that kind of thing happens. <laughs> <Spoiler alert>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it might be, like you said, it could be both both a physical temple in Jerusalem and then perhaps some kind of uh, of a invasion or infiltration into the church itself, seated in the church. Who knows? Okay, so moving right along in this prophecy of St. Paul, he says, Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things. So this is something that Paul's been repeating. Verse 6, And now you know that what withholdeth, that he may be revealed in his time. And here's our reference in the Greek to katekon, what withholdeth. So it's a holding back. There's some kind of, uh, something that wants to push forward, evil, iniquity. And then there's this katekon, or katekon, that's withholding the evil. And this is in verse uh, six. What would you like to add there? Yeah, well, it, as we go through the text, as you said, there's the there's the Greek neuter, which sort of refers to an impersonal force or mm-hmm. thing, and then he's going to use the masculine singular. Um, so somebody like Saint John Chrysostom, for example, believed that it, uh, although some people think it's the Holy Spirit, others say that because he kind of was, you know, kind of walked around it without saying it. He could have been referring to the Roman Empire. As, as John Chrysostom says, he naturally glanced at it and speaks covertly and darkly, for he did not wish to bring upon himself superfluous enemy enmities and useless dangers. So um, as you point out in your book uh, about Eternal City, right, uh, the, the apostles always had to be careful. They never name Rome directly. They'll, right. Peter will say, I'm talking to greetings from Babylon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and and also, you know, in in the book of Acts, where it, when when Peter escapes from prison, it very cryptically says, 
and he went to another place. Whereas everything in Acts, Luke documents where they are, where they're going, right? You just don't end a, a section on, and Peter went to another place. Well, tradition says the other place that he went was Rome, but they don't want to say, hey, Roman emperor persecutors are leaders now in Rome right now. And this is exactly. this is how things go. Just like in Romans 13, when Paul is talking about Nero, he never actually names him, though he's referred to a couple times. Exactly. And in this case, the idea is, is that at some point the restrainer is going to stop restraining. So if right. it was referring to the Roman Empire, you're implying that one day the Roman Empire is not going to exist anymore. And that's sort of a treasonous statement. So, yes, big time. You know, it's interesting when I read last night this document, the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, mm-hmm. it set up a parallel between whatever the Katekon is on the at the end of the world and made a type of it in the Old Testament of Alexander the Great. It's very curious. So it says in the text that in the Old Testament, Alexander the Great receives the kingdom from his father, Philip, and then he conquers the world, and he finds this disgusting people that it says abort their babies and eat the fetuses. And they eat unclean animals and reptiles and snakes and bugs, and they're, they're very immoral people uh, and sexually immoral. And so what Alexander the Great does, this is all apocryphal, he rounds these people up and pushes them to the north. And then he builds an invincible gate in a wall and he puts them behind it. And this turns out to be, guess what? Gog and Magog. Ah, yes. The peoples of the north. Right. Now, whether it's an allegory, whether people really believe this, I don't really know. I'm not a Alexander the Great legend scholar. But I thought it was very interesting that in in the way that this document understands Katekon is, is in the Old Testament, Alexander the Great, who was a political leader, finds a disgusting, foul, sinful, abortive culture and pushes them far north and bars them off with the gate. So that right there is a it's a withholding Katekon. Right. And then it later shows that the gates are opened in the apocalypse and the people of the north. And this brings in the, the language and the visions of the book of revelation that we have of St. John, the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of interesting that, that this document is playing with that idea and actually using the, the image of gates, which of course goes back to the Petrine office, the gates of hell, right. And all that. So there's, there's kind of some interesting things that are going on with restraining. And I've been going back and forth in my mind, Dr. Maza over is Katakon political or ecclesiastical? Is it the Roman Empire? I've been really playing with the idea that it's Blessed Carl of Austria is the final Kate Cone. But I was talking to a friend of mine Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, and he reminded me that the Pope holds two swords, the spiritual and the temporal. And so the political Kate Cone is really just borrowing one of the swords from the Pope. Well, um, let me me lay lay on you a couple of quotes. One is from Cardinal Manning. And the others from Cardinal Newman, and they're both the great outstanding English cardinals of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And this is what Cardinal Manning says. He says um, how it is the uh, the power which hinders the revelation of the lawless one is not only a person but a system, 
and not only a system, but a person. Right, which would be the neuter and the masculine. And so he says, in one word, it is Christendom and its head, and therefore in the person of the vicar of Christ, and in that twofold authority with which by divine providence he has been invested. And, um, and so um, he goes on to say that uh, he who holdeth shall be taken out of the way. And uh, so Cardinal Manning was of the opinion that it's, it's sort of a partnership, right, between the, the papacy and the temporal power. But as you point out, the, 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 it is the, and most Catholics don't know this, but the church has always taught that the papacy has the right of intervening indirectly in the temporal power when it comes to the issues of salvation. Right. Um, and then uh, Cardinal Newman um, takes a slightly different take on this. Cardinal Newman says that, all right, so here's the deal. In Second Thessalonians, let's assume that the catacon is the Roman Empire, or the Roman emperors in particular, uh, and they're holding back lawlessness, right? Um, there's also another, and I brought this up in our second show five months ago, there's also a vision in Daniel connected to this. Uh, not only is, is, the, is Rome possibly the catacomb, but Rome is also the fourth kingdom. Yes. And when that fourth kingdom falls, it's supposed to be the inauguration of the Antichrist. So this is what, but of course Rome fell seven, you know, sixteen hundred years ago. So right. how come we haven't seen the Antichrist sixteen hundred for the last sixteen hundred years? This is what Cardinal Newman says. He says um, the Roman Empire, in the view of prophecy, remains even to this day. He says that um, basically what he interprets Daniel uh, and the fact that there are ten kings that shall rise out of this kingdom. It's Daniel 7, I believe. Right. And, and, and the, the, the interpretation that Cardinal Newman, or Saint, I should say St. Cardinal Newman, puts on this, right? He says, consequently, we have not yet seen the end of the Roman Empire. That which withholdeth still exists up to the manifestation of its ten horns and until it is removed. So he says, Essentially, we can look at the successor kingdoms to the Roman Empire. Now, this gets interesting. This could be the Holy Roman Empire, of which you said Blessed Coral was the last great representative, right? Um, people in the East look to the Tsars and to, even to Putin and see yeah. him as per perhaps the catacomb. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, this does get kind of interesting because uh, not many people know this. I don't know if it came up yesterday with uh, Charles Coulomb, but... Blessed Carl, people think he abdicated. He renounced the active ministry, <laughs> so to speak, but he held on right. to the uh, regal authority. And, and I've got some good quotes on that. Of course, it was the Freemasons who uh, forced him out, and they couldn't bribe him, and they couldn't intimidate him. But um, so, yeah, I, like I, you know, again, there's, there's different ways of approaching Second Thessalonians, and I, I, I tend to veer towards the idea that it's a partnership. It's Christendom. It's a yeah. partnership between the papacy and the temporal rulers. And I think that's what Archbishop Vigano is getting at when he says that the man who occupies the chair of Peter today uh, is, is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And, 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 and the temporal ruler, President Trump, is in a position to help to shore up Christendom against the Antichrist. Right, right. And Christendom, is, uh, Cardinal Manning's, you know, 
signification there of Christendom is important. People don't know nowadays what Christendom is. Christendom comes from Domus Latin, house, home, Christen, Christian, Christian home. And Christendom designates not just the church, but Christendom is the integration of the church guiding and shepherding the states, the Christian states. So this is the vision that going back to when Armenia became the very first confessional state, Rome, and then from beyond that, from France to the the northern nations, Eastern Europe, all these Christian nations had a public and confessional recognition of the Pope and of Christ and the church. And that is Christendom. And you can see that when the state is aligned with the church, and of course there were rocky moments throughout time, that that's going to withhold iniquity. Precisely, to uphold the reign of Christ the King uh, and, and, and the special place of the church within the social order. Mm-hmm. And you can argue that, you know, starting with uh, the 1960s, uh, because the Vatican has moved away from this, you know, under, the traditional understanding of church and state, that that was sort of the beginning of the, um, well, as we go through Second Thessalonians here, we'll see that the, the, the restrainer stops restraining. Yeah, yeah. And that, that signals, and then the scary kind of thing about this is that signals the eschatological countdown. Exactly. And, you know, I've actually found some interesting quotes from Pope Benedict um, on the subject. I, I, he doesn't actually use the word catacomb, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, you can infer that that's, that that's kind of what he's referring to. Um, I, could, uh, I can pull that up real quick here. You pull that up, and I'm going to read the next verse in Second Thessalonians just to get sure. us going on it. So sure. it says, And now you know that withholdeth, catacon, that he may be revealed in his time, verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity already worketh, only that he who now holdeth, now here's catacon male, personal, do hold until he be taken out of the way. And then that wicked one shall be revealed whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Um, one little comment here that's worth saying. So it says, now he that holdeth, katakon, do hold until he be taken out of the way. And the Greek there is ek mesu and the Latin is a medio, literally from the middle. Or you could, some translators put from the midst, but both exactly. the Greek and the Latin say from the middle or from the midst. And I think that's kind of important because um, it doesn't mean that whatever the catacon is, is obliterated. It ceases right. to exist. Rather, it's taken out of the middle, right? So you can just think of a highway and someone's in the middle of the highway blocking the Antichrist and all the evils from moving forward. Well, he's taken out of the middle, out of the midst, and now things can move forward. But that doesn't mean that he he's dead or ceases to exist. Does that make sense? It does. Which and means it can I, come back. You know, <laughs> you could have another Roman Empire. You could have, if the papacy is moved out of the way, the papacy can come back. And I think right. that's kind of an important detail. Definitely. Yeah. Um, here's that Ratzinger quote mm-hmm. that I was looking for. Um and uh, he, Joseph Ratzinger says, is Peter as a person the foundation of the church? 
or is his profession of faith the foundation of the church? And the answer is the profession of faith, and I would say that's something neuter, exists only as something for which someone is personally responsible. And I would put that as the masculine singular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and it's nice. interesting that Cardinal Ratzinger puts it this way, which someone is personally responsible for, because Pope Benedict, in his subsequent interviews with Peter Sewald over the last five years, mm-hmm. uh, has made statements to the effect that although he is no longer the acting you know, bishop of Rome, he still stands within the responsibility. And so I don't want to get into the weeds on that unless you'd, unless you'd like to, but I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, but to get back to the original quote here, um, so the profession of faith exists as something for which someone is personally responsible, and hence the profession of faith is connected with the person. Listen to this. Conversely, the foundation is not a person regarded in a metaphysically neutral way, but rather as the bearer of the profession of faith. And this is the kicker. One without the other would miss the significance of what is meant. This personal liability forms the heart of the doctrine of papal primacy. And if I could just add one more sentence here, he says, uh, he talks about Abraham and how in Isaiah, Abraham's faith is referred to as a rock. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and of course, Jesus refers in, in Matthew 16, 16 to, to Peter as the rock, right? Yeah. So this is what um, uh, Ratzinger says. He says, by his faith, the rock that holds back the chaos, the onrushing primordial flood of destruction, the rock that stands against the impure tide of unbelief and its destruction of man. That, and that's catacomb. Yeah. So uh, uh, definitely the papacy has a role, it, you know, in the catacomb uh, term there. Yeah, I, 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 that's, what that's, that's great. Yeah, and, and it hit me too while you're talking or you're quoting the Benedict uh, quote. So there's the neuter catacomb, which would be the profession of faith. And then there's the personal catacomb, which would be he who's, what does Benedict say, responsible for it? Personal responsibility, right. yeah. And then I was thinking in my mind, just in the Latin, we refer to the Catholic faith as the depositum fidei. Depositum is a neuter term. The deposit of the faith. Depositum fidei. So that deposit of faith can never change. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. And that is, you know, when Christ reinstates Peter and says, feed my sheep, he's saying, give them the true faith. Exactly. The depositum fidei, which is the neuter. Yeah. And, then and also, the, yep. I was say, getting back to the text of Second Thessalonians, you mentioned there how in the Greek it talks about the catacomb being removed from the middle yes. or from the yes. center. Ekmesu in Greek. Well, let me read you these two sentences from Cardinal Ratzinger. Many non-Catholics affirm the necessity of a common center of Christianity. It is becoming evident that only such a center can be an effective protection against the drift into dependence on political systems or the pressures emanating from our civilization that only by having such a center can the faith of Christians secure a clear voice in the confusion of ideologies. 
Um, so again, uh, associating the, the the church or the papacy with mm-hmm. that center there. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And also, if we go back to the idea of gates, which was in the um, Pseudomethodius uh, apocalypse, this idea that gates also hold back. A, a, a gate is a catacomb. It holds, you put a gate up around your property to hold back people from getting in. It holds them back. And so when you remove that, there's a rush forward. And and it seems that Archbishop Vigano <clears throat> doesn't mince words. He says that um, the man who occupies the chair right now is is not keeping the is not being a good gatekeeper. He's yeah, let, letting in. Yeah. Let me read that quote. This to me was the most explosive quote in Archbishop Vigano's letter to President Trump. And what's notable here's the quote, but it's the sentence right before it. Dr. Maza is his sentence on Katekon. So the two ideas are going together with Vigano. So here's the quote that Vigano has against Francis Bergoglio. He says, as is now clear, the one who occupies the chair of Peter has betrayed his role from the very beginning in order to defend and promote the globalist ideology, supporting the agenda of the deep church who chose him from its ranks. End quote. Yeah. Now, Dr. Mazza, you and I have talked about the Mazza thesis about what does it mean to occupy the chair? Can the supremacy of the Petrine office be be um, re- uh, disjointed from the episcopacy of Rome, etc.? Now, do you think Archbishop Vigano believes that Pope Francis Bergoglio actually occupies the chair of Peter? What I, what, I, what I remark at is his constant use of circumlocutions mm. or talking around something. Okay. Why does he use the phrase, he who occupies the chair or the man who occupies the chair? Right. Why, don't, why don't you just say Pope? Right. Why does he constantly say Jorge Bergoglio right. and not Pope Francis? Um, or this was, this was the real kicker. Uh, I'm sure you read this. Um, it was early October uh, in an Italian uh, newspaper. One of the lines that Archbishop Vigano says is he refers, he says, those who hold the papacy and who wear its robes, albeit awkwardly. Yes. Now, wait a minute. You don't use the plural when you're t- to refer to the papacy. I mean, and, and he wasn't, I mean, I, I don't have the original reference right in front of me, but he wasn't referring to like a pattern over like 20 years or something. Mm-hmm. The, the context for that sentence, that particular sentence, the context was, uh, you would assume he would have said he who holds the papacy. Right. So if if, if he does agree with the Maza thesis, he's keeping his cards close to his vest, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he's not actually coming out and saying it, but he is using these rather curious phrases. Right. Very enigmatic. Yeah, why, why don't I read the, the sentence that goes before where he says the one who occupies the chair of Peter. He says, in sacred scripture, St. Paul speaks of the one who opposes the manifestation of the mystery of iniquity, the katekon, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In the religious fear, this obstacle to evil is the church, which we've said, right? And in particular, the papacy. In the political sphere, 
It is those who impede the establishment of the new world order. So he has a multi-level katekon going on in his theology. Do you agree with that, Dr. Mazza? I do. I think he's right there with Cardinal Manning mm-hmm. uh, saying that it's a it's the partnership that's existed between the papacy and the temporal rulers going back to Constantine. Right. Uh, and and maybe that's why the earliest church commentators couldn't see it clearly, uh, couldn't really understand what Paul was talking about because it hadn't really fully evolved yet. Right. It wasn't right. until Christendom was established that um, you could see it more clearly. And it's only now that the forces of Antichrist have taken over, so to speak, that we can really begin to see it. Um, so my personal take on this is I think that Pope Benedict kind of stepped to the side or was pushed to the side. And that is this dislodging of the catacomb, allowing the forces of Antichrist to just kind of take over. And actually, this uh, next month, November, the English version of uh, A Life by, by Benedict will come out, the one that was published in May in German, now uh, by Peter Sewald. Now, I've done an English algorithmic translation of that. And this is interesting what Pope Benedict has to say. Um, They ask, Peter Sewold asks him uh, about the flee, you know, remember when our, when Pope Benedict said, pray for me that I don't flee for the wolves. Wolves. That was, you know, right when he was elected. Um, And so um, he, Pope Benedict responds to that. And he says that um, the real threat to the church and thus to the Petrine service uh, lies in the worldwide dictatorship of apparently humanistic ideologies. Um, and he goes on to say, modern society is in the process of formulating an anti-Christian creed, which to be resisted is punished with social excommunication. And here's the kicker. The fear of this spiritual power of the Antichrist is then all too natural. That's what he was referring to when he said, pray for me that I don't flee for fear of the wolves. Mm -hmm. And this is what he says. He says, it really takes the prayer of an entire diocese to resist it. Mm. To resist, to hold back. I think the diocese in question is the diocese of Rome. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the he's talking about without actually talking about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Diocese of Rome and the Apostolic See, uh, Vigano makes this cryptic reference to the Vatican's magic circle. I thought, you know, his first open letter to President Trump, his cryptic text that not everyone picked up on right away was his reference to the Baphomet and the, the slogan, Solve et Coagula. And that's been kind of, I think people know about it now, and they understand that means to dissolve, break down, and rebuild a new society, a new church, a new everything. This time around in this letter, I think the two cryptic things that Archbishop Vigano is leaking out to the president, but also to the public, is this whole theology of Katekon, which we're talking about, and this reference to the Vatican magic circle. So just so y'all know what a magic circle is, sadly, you've probably seen it on TV with Satanism or ritual magic. 
the practitioners create a pentagram or a circle on the ground and they cast spells, cast energy into this circle to make it for them sacred, which is actually not sacred. They can use chalk, they can use blood, they use salt, they draw it in the dirt or whatever. And, and what it's doing is it's, um, or rope, it's creating for them a portal with the preternatural for them to talk to the preternatural. And we as Catholics know that these preternatural forces that actually do come and visit and talk to these people in a magic circle are demons. I mean, this is how you get possessed by demons, people, if you do this. All right. And it creates this, this portal in which you're, you're basically telling the demons, you're telling these personal agents, come into me, come talk to me, come commune with me. And, uh, it's, it's real bad. Now in this letter, he talks about the Vatican magic circle. And I want to read because he places it with the Vatican as having communion and interchange with secular globalist leaders. And here's the quote. He says to president Trump around you are gathered with faith and courage. Those who consider you the final garrison against the world dictatorship. And I think garrison here could also be English for a catechum. The alternative is to vote for a person who was manipulated by the deep state. Dr. Maza, who's that? The one who's manipulated by the deep state. That we would vote for. Yeah, that's Biden. That's Biden. Okay, so the alternative is to vote for a person who's manipulated by the deep state, gravely compromised by scandals and corruption, who will do to the United States what Jorge Mario Bergoglio is doing to the church. Definitely. Prime Minister... Conte to Italy, President Macron to France, Prime Minister Sanchez to Spain, and so on. And then he says, going back to Joe Biden, the black mailable nature of Joe Biden, just like that of the prelates of the Vatican's magic circle, will expose him to be used unscrupulously, allowing illegitimate powers to interfere in domestic politics as well as international balances. So here, Vigano is using this language of occult magic, Satanism, uh, communion with the dead, communion with demons, magic circle, and he's using it for the prelates of the Vatican. And it's plural. Prelates. prelates. So what he's doing here is he's basically revealing that these are not just sex scandals or financial scandals. This is a cult practice amongst the prelates of the Vatican. I mean, that, that to me, I knew that was true. I'm just amazed that it's being printed. Yeah, that's, that's heavy stuff for a Friday morning, as you said. Yeah, yeah. So, and he also uses this language of Trump as a garrison against the world dictatorship. So... You know, this idea that what is being held back, Katekon, is the mystery of iniquity. It's a cult, it's demonic, it's dark, and it involves, in Paul's theology, not just demons, but demons who possess and influence humans to attack the saints, to attack the church, 
to attack the faithful. That's what's scary. That, you know, but um, this is, again, it's from the book of Revelation, right? We see that the dragon with his tail in chapter 12 drags a third of the stars from the sky. Yeah. Now, that's been yeah. interpreted in different ways. That could be a third of the angels that fell and became demons and ultimately were defeated by St. Michael. But it's also been interpreted to mean, uh, you know, the, the princes of the church. Yeah. Right. Uh, third of the clergy. Yeah. Yeah. There was a um, uh, a commentary on the Apocalypse of John by a uh, priest. In the, uh, his name was E. Sylvester Berry. And he wrote a book in 1921 called The Apocalypse of St. John. And in that book, he claims that um, that this is one of the things that's going to happen, the abomination of desolation. Antichrist and his prophet will introduce ceremonies to imitate the sacraments of the church. Um, a church of Satan will be, will be set up in opposition to the church of, of Christ. Um, and it, so and, and other other great authors have talked about this as well. Um, Bishop Bishop Fulton Sheen talks mm -hmm. about the what the anti-church is going to look like. Right. Yep. And you know this phrase "magic circle." I was thinking, you know, traditional Catholicism is always vertical and transcendent, and in the Novus Ordo and in you know new architectures, the whole emphasis is on circularity. Just by putting the priest on the other side of the altar, you're making a circle, and they they rearrange churches this way, and they bring the altar off from you know deep in the transept and bring it out, you know, out into just up to the pews, and then they sometimes put seats around that. So there's this whole idea that we're circling, and that it's the circling of the people that creates the energy or the presence of the divine instead of seeing it more as incarnational that the second person of the Trinity enters into our midst and we come to greet him like the Magi. We don't, right. we don't create a magic circle and summon him. That's not, no, no. that's not Catholic. And you're right. It's, it's not a circular thing. It's a vertical thing. Right. It's the way it's supposed to be right. right. It, like the, the great Gothic cathedrals, they draw us up to God. Um, but here's a quote from Bishop Sheen, which I'm going to be using in my Christ versus Antichrist you know, Advent course. He says, and this is very timely, and I think you'll catch the buzzword here, because his religion will be brotherhood mm. <laughs> without, what's another word for brotherhood, Dr. Marshall? Fraternity, yeah. <laughs> because his <Fratelli>. religion, <laughs> you said it, not me, uh, because his religion will be brotherhood Without the fatherhood of God, he will deceive even the elect. Mm -hmm. Okay, He will set up a counter church, which will be the ape of the church, because he, the devil, is the ape of God. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Yep. It will have all the notes and characteristics of the church, but here's the kicker, but in reverse and emptied of its divine content. So we're losing the verticality, right? Yep. And, and the transcendence, and it's in reverse. So it's instead of going to God, we're going to man. Yes. And that's where, as you as you've been tirelessly pointing out, that's the salve et coagula. Yep. That's that's the Freemasons who a hundred years ago predicted that they would they would grab the Vatican, right? That yep. They would grab a pope. Yeah. 
Well, let's get a little bit, before we close up here, let's get a little bit more edgy. And people who have watched our videos together know that Dr. Ed Mazza is the Mazza thesis guy who um, holds that Pope Francis himself does not hold the papal supremacy. And, um, you know, I kind of, I want to set you free, Dr. Mazza, to talk about that. Uh, I'm interested in it. Um, especially with regard to Vigano saying he who sits on the chair of Peter um, and how that kind of works and if there's been any development or modifications in your own thesis as 2020 has roared by. Go for it. Sure. Okay. So to summarize, the way I see it, there's two ways of going with this. There are two two things that could have happened. Uh, Repeatedly, in his Seawald interviews, um, Ganswine as well, Benedict refers to himself as having a spiritual connection to his former diocese, which cannot be severed. He speaks about, he says here, a father does not stop being a father, but he is relieved of concrete responsibility. He remains a father in a deep inward sense in a particular relationship which has responsibility. He remains in an inner sense within the responsibility. Earlier in the show, I shared with you a quote from Cardinal Ratzinger where he speaks about the papacy in those terms. Right. So what's clear is that he repeatedly says he has a, an ontological connection to his former diocese. Now, what does that mean? There's two ways of going with this. One way is to look at it this way, right? Uh, he, he, sees bishop, he sees Pope Emeritus as Bishop Emeritus of Rome, okay? He's no longer functioning or acting with day-to-day -day duties. He doesn't have the act of governance, right? Just like Blessed Karl gave up the act of governance of, of Austria and Hungary. Um, so, but... He claims that he has this spiritual connection to the diocese, but there's a problem with that. Because as you and I talked about last May, most theologians in the history of the church have said you can't separate the diocese of Rome <clears throat> from vicar of Christ. Right. <clears throat> so the problem with Benedict claiming that he still has a spiritual connection to the diocese is that he would automatically, without realizing it, claim to have a spiritual connection to Vicar of Christ, right? Because you can't separate the two. So if I claim to have a connection to the See of Rome, I'm also claiming to have a connection to Vicar of Christ. And what I learned in my research is, is that this position was condemned uh, during the time of the Jansenists. Uh, one of those 17th century popes condemned the idea that you can share the vicarship of Christ. Because there was somebody at the time who was promoting the idea that Peter and Paul were both sort of popes, oh, so to speak. So this would mean that if this was true, that Pope Benedict committed a substantial error mm -hmm. and therefore would still retain the papacy. It would mean that the conclave that elected uh, Francesco would have been invalid because, because you can't, uh, you know, he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, he wanted to be able to be Pope Emeritus of Rome, but you can't be Pope Emeritus of Rome without being Vicar Emeritus of Rome. Right. And, the and the church has condemned right. that notion of Vicar Emeritus of Rome. 
Um, and so uh, now the other explanation is that, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph, I mean, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict being, you know, uh, you can disagree with his theology about certain things, but you can't disagree that the guy's a great intellect. Perhaps he figured out that he has the power as Pope to separate Vicar of Christ from Bishop of Rome. There, there's a minority view, and if folks want to learn more about this, they can see our original interviews. There's a minority view among prominent theologians in the church's history, minority view, that it is possible under grave circumstances for a pope, an acting, you know, a legitimate pope, to um, separate vicar of Christ from the diocese of Rome. Now, had, had, if, he, if that's what he did, he can still call himself Pope Emeritus or Bishop Emeritus of Rome because um, he has separated the two. Right. And then, the, then there's nothing wrong with calling yourself Bishop of Rome, or excuse me, uh, Bishop Emeritus of Rome, or Pope Emeritus of Rome. But what it, what it would mean is he's also still Vicar of Christ, and it would mean that all these terrible things that are that are being done in the name of the papacy, being done in the name of the Church by Francesco, have no validity to them, because it it, it he's he's Judas, he's not Peter. I mean, he might be Bishop of Rome, but he's not Vicar of Christ under that scenario. Now, what about, you know, an alternative take on this is just Robert Bellarmine says, any any cleric who is a manifest heretic immediately loses his office. So would if you added this to the puzzle that you're discussing, even if Jorge Bergoglio became Pope, if he does things that are manifestly heretical, wouldn't that deprive him from the papacy? And do we need a council or a group of cardinals? And if what you're saying is the correct way and not that way, don't we still need Cardinal Burke and Cardinal Seurat and some guys to get together and, and define this and decree this? Or can we just talk about it on YouTube and, and blogs and podcasts? I mean, it seems like we need some definitions here. Yes. Well, again, I don't want to come off like a city of a contest. And so, uh, in my writings, I try to avoid bringing up what you just said, but it is Catholic teaching that a bishop who became uh, a, a material, formal, you know, heretic, there are some nuances here, yeah. but if he becomes a heretic, he automatically loses his office without anybody censuring him, without anybody doing anything to him, okay? It's automatic. Um, one of your heroes, I think, was a guy named Eusebius, who was a, a Catholic layman at the time of Bishop Nestorius yep. in Constantinople. For Christmas, <laughs> Archbishop Nestorius gives a sermon in which he says, Mary is not the Theotokos. She's not the God-bearer. Yep. And Eusebius stood up in the, in the cathedral of Hagia Sophia and called him a heretic. <laughs> As a layman, he did. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and according to my research, he set up a placard inside Hagia Sophia listing all the heresies of Nestorius and how those line up with the heretic Paul of Samosata, mm -hmm. who was the first heretic bishop in the church's history from a previous century. Um, so, yeah, I would agree with those people who say that uh, uh, if Francesco has you know, committed heresy, then he would have lost even Bishop of Rome. I mean, I'm willing to grant him that he could be Bishop of Rome, but he would have lost that too if he's right. guilty of heresy. Now, that the trick is, in church history, no one can judge the Holy See. You can't judge right. 
the papacy. Um, and we don't have time right now to, to get into all the ins and outs of that. But we, I would strongly agree with you that we need all the good cardinals, Cardinal Burke, uh, Bishop Schneider, uh, Archbishop Vigano. Uh, we need all the good men in the church to come out and deal with this and take the bull by, by the horns because we're just laity, right? It, right. It's, it's, we want to follow faithful bishops. We, we want to be within the church. You know, you and I are accused of being schismatics. That's the last thing you and I want to do right. is, is, be, is be in schism. Okay, but that's what Archbishop Vigano says, is that the our enemies want to get us uh, pilloried right. uh, and, and excommunicated, you know, uh, in, in, in the various meanings of that word. And then when really, ironically, it, it's the people that are running the church who are in trouble, not us. Right. We, we want to be faithful. Right. Yeah. You and I, we want to hold every single tidbit, jot and tittle of the deposit of faith. I don't want to deny any of it. I don't want to evolve it. I don't want to modify it. I don't want to modernize it. I want it good old timey Roman Catholicism. And I think I, you know, I pulled up the name. It's Eusebius of Doralium. Eusebius of Doralium. He was a layman. And after he called out Nestorius, the church then made him into a bishop. Exactly. They're like, hey, you got pretty good theology. <laughs> you, you called out a heretic, Archbishop. Yeah, no. and Celestine never criticized him for, for doing what he did, as far right. as I know. And yeah. I've heard that after that Christmas sermon by the arch-heretic Nestorius, the people began to riot in the city and cause commotion, saying, we have, I think they said, we have an emperor, but we don't have a bishop, because they consider Nestorius as... Yes. having somehow vacated. Now, it still required the Council of, uh, which was it, Chalcedon? Who condemned Nestorius? Uh, Ephesus. Ephesus. Uh, yeah, Ephesus in 431. It still required the council to decree it. So I don't think, mm. you know, the very next hour, Eusebius was kicked out of the cathedral and out of his quarters. Right. You know, it took ecclesiastical machine to rule against him. But there is this sort of idea amongst the lady, wait a second, our archbishop has just denied that Mary's Theotokos. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and you know, there's an interesting quote from Robert St. Robert Bellarmine, where uh, he talks about um, the papacy. Um, he says, the power of Peter's keys does not extend to the point that the Supreme Pontiff can declare not sin, what is sin, mm -hmm. or sin, that which is not sin. Right. In, in fact, this would be to call evil good and good evil. And listen to this. This is the money quote. Something that has always been and always will be very far from the one who is the head of the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So... I could argue off of that quote there that if somebody comes out and says that something is that that which we know is sinful, objectively sinful, right. according to the natural order right. is a good thing, then that person is not the head of the church. Yeah, because what's the point of having a papacy if the papacy can make sin, not sin or not sin, sin? I mean, that, that basically puts him above God, which is ridiculous. Well, good. Well, good show. I want to be faithful to the church. I want to be faithful to the Holy Father. Yeah. And ultimately, Christ the King. Christ the King. Amen. 
So, well, Dr. Ed Mazza, thanks for coming on. Thanks for giving us some analysis on this new um, statement by Vigano to President Trump. And we, you know, we talked about Katekan. We talked about Magic Circle. We talked about some of the um, the difficulties with regard to the papacy in our time, where we seem to have contradiction with previous popes, or even calling some things not sin that are sin. Uh, it's it's a difficult time for all Catholics, and I, I would encourage everyone to have charity towards one another and patience towards one another. And we live in a very difficult time, and so I think that's why we need to have charity and patience for one another, because the answers are not yet clear. If we had, for example, right now, if right now there were 60 cardinals in Rome debating this and working on a solution, uh, then it would be a little bit more... Um, I'm sure that would be difficult, but at least we'd be like, okay, a solution's coming. Right now, it doesn't feel that way. We have some letters coming out from Vigano. We have some good books and stuff coming from Schneider and occasional something from Burke and all that. But it, it feels uh, feels like we're in a bit of a stalemate, but not a checkmate. So, all right, Dr. Mazza, let's close up by um, praying the Ave Maria. If you like this video, please give it a thumbs up. And please uh, share this video by hitting the share button on um, Facebook and on Twitter. And please subscribe and hit the bell. So when we go live, you'll be notified. And then um, after we say the prayer, uh, Dr. Ed Maz, I'd like you to tell people quickly about your Advent um, course. And we'll sign off. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Oremus. Nomine Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria. Gratia plena Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in molieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora per nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. Nomine Patris, et Fidii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, before we sign off here, what's going on in um, Advent? Yeah, so if folks go to edmundmaza.com, uh, they can sign up for a special Advent mini-course that I'm going to be offering on the Sundays of Advent. So the first two Sundays we're going to talk, we're going to explore in Scripture and in history uh, the the coming of Christ and His Church, and then the next two Sundays we're going to explore again from Scripture and history and other sources the coming of the Antichrist and the coming of the anti-church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't think of a better way to prepare for the coming of our Lord at Christmas. Uh, or to prepare our souls and families for the the possible coming of our Lord in glory, uh, if if we're in if we are in that time that uh, that uh, the the eschaton, you know, um, and uh, and also I've also got some other courses for the spring folks can find out about as well. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, very good. And of course, everybody pray the rosary, rattle those beads, pray the rosary every day, or you're not on the team. Read the Bible, get to a traditional Latin mass. Let's feed ourselves, let's get strong, and let's be confident in Christ. So pray the rosary daily. And remember, our Lord Jesus Christ said you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. Dr. Ed Mazza, thank you. God bless. Godspeed. God bless. Take care.